Hello, welcome along. We've made you found us, which is amazing. Well done. Uh, congratulate yourself. Uh, James Watt in conversation. Show talk. Mike Darbo today uh, from the Manfreds. They're back on tour this autumn. All being well, uh, which is going to be a hoot, a hoot. Mike Darbo, of course, being them with donkeys year, donkeys years, and maybe a bit longer as well. Don't forget, subscribe away to this, and you'll get uh, more coming through as and when and like it. You meant to do all that stuff on podcasts. I don't know why, but people say you should do it. So just join the crowd, grow with the flow. Anyway. This is what happened when Watty met Mike Darby. You're going to love this, so stick around. Uh, Mike Darby, hello, Mike. How you doing? You could only get Mike Darby, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> I know you wanted Paul Jones. Ah, uh, you but, see, uh, well, I'm we... a poor man's Paul Jones. Except I make more money than him anyway, because I I wrote more hit songs. But that's another story. Well, that's it. That, that niggles him a little bit. That's that. Uh, you know, that may be niggling. Uh, well, welcome to the to the show. Because yeah, let's well let's work this out then. Because there's the Manfreds and there's the Paul Paul Jones Manfred Man. Uh, now you call yourself the Manfred. So well, how's we can't it, how's call it? ourselves Manfred Man. I'll tell you why, James. What happened was. I'll give your listeners a quick, brief history, very, very brief, potted history. 1962, the Manhug Blues Brothers got signed to EMI and uh, were told they had to change their name. And so from they said, why don't we call ourselves the Blues Brothers? And they said, no, that's a, a lousy name. <laughs> <laughs> Years later, that was proved wrong. But uh, they said, we think we should call you Manfred Mann, which caused a lot of confusion because everyone knew that Manfred Mann was the keyboard player. And uh, some people assumed that Paul Jones, being the singer, was Manfred Mann. Yeah. So when they made 54321, they all stuck a finger up. One, two, three, four, five. Manfred Mann, one. Manfred, one. Manfred, two. Manfred. But, you know, it didn't really work. It, it, it caused confusion, even though I must say it's a great name, Manfred Mann. It's sort of trips off the tongue very easily but confusion reigned for some time now when paul gave in his notice in late 65 that he wanted to leave for a solo career they were on the lookout for a replacement and the deal was that paul would stay until they found that replacement we did a television show together called a whole scene going where i was in my little group a band of angels and i happened to be the featured singer on this song invitation that i'd written and therefore the camera hogged on, stayed on me quite a long time as I sang it. And they all looked at one another and said, oh, this guy looks like a possible contender. And so Manfred came up to me, got my name. And to cut a long story short, I got the job a few months later. So my era was 66 to 69. Then Manfred and Mike Hug, who both formed the band in the early 60s, said, why don't we call it a day, because we want to go off and start a, our jazz ba group, which was going to be called Manfred Man Chapter 3, right. which actually failed to get off the launching pad at all, even though they made two very expensive albums. Then in 1972, Manfred and Mike Hug parted company, and Manfred formed a new band called Manfred Man's Earth Band. Right. And he still has that band to this day. Now, back in 1991, when Tom McGuinness had a 50th birthday party, he said, let's try and get the Manfreds back together. Manfred declined, but Paul Jones and I, Mike Vickers, Tom McGuinness and Mike Hugg all said, oh, what a lovely idea. And so Manfred, we were that night called X Fred X. <laughs> that was the X Fred X, which didn't last long as a name. <laughs> Some people suggested we, we call ourselves the new Manfreds on the block. <laughs> I said, but 
The only name we were legally allowed to call ourselves was the Manfreds, because Manfred, the individual, the keyboard player, whose real name is Manfred Lubowitz, it's not Manfred, man, he said, you're breaking the law in terms of the contract. I exclusively have the rights to the name Manfred Mann, which seemed a bit petty, considering we'd all been mates at one point. Yeah. So as the Manfreds, we reformed in 1991, and uh, did our first tour, I think, in 1994. Have toured every 18 months to two years since. And here we are. Do- <laughs> so, so did that sort of set the scene? Yeah, I got it. What, what, what happened? What's happened to uh, the Manfred Man? Nobody knows. Do we not talk about him now? Yeah, yeah. We don't. We don't really talk about him. <laughs> N- near our paths never cross. Uh, I, I suppose over the years he might have mellowed and possibly might, in the fullness of time, regret that he's been so restrictive on us. You know, I once did a concert with my band in where. In, in Ireland, uh, well, it was a tour actually, it was Mike Darbo and his mighty quintet relive the uh, Manfred Mania and the hits of Manfred Mann. Of course, the word Manfred Mann was bigger than my name. And so Manfred got on the phone to me and said, I- I'll cancel that tour. And at a later date said he'll have us all in prison if we dare to go through with the tour billed under the name Manfred Mann. So there's been no love lost between oh, right, us yeah. over the years, which is rather a shame. But he's um, probably alive and moderately well, uh, living in Blackheath somewhere, I should think. You're listening to James Watt in conversation with Mike Darbo. Uh, and don't forget to subscribe. Uh, that'd be lovely. And if you want to contact the show, uh, at James Watt UK on Twitter or jameswattuk.com is the website. Uh, hello at jameswattuk.com will work. Back with Mike Darbo. Because one of the things I've noticed is that Paul and I, our voices aren't, well, we think our voices are better than they were in the 60s. Paul's got very sort of baritone and do a de 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 dum and I've got more sort of, she walked through that. I've got a bit more sort of edge on my voice. Because um, when, when you take over from a group and you've got to play the, all, the, all the hits that were done by the previous uh, incumbent, uh, you know, you've, do, you, do you have to sort of try and sound a bit similar or not really well well that's very interesting i try to sound like paul when i sing pretty flamingo but i can't do it uh, here's me trying to be paul jones on a block all of the guys call her flamingo because uh, you know i haven't quite got that bigness that he's got i tend to sort of sing more i don't know it's a different voice but i'll tell you a funny thing there we were, James, back in 1966. I was the new lead singer. My debut concert in the Tivoli Gardens in Copenhagen. Oh, yeah. Uh, when Manfred and Tom and... Um, of course, my new bass player was Cla- lovely Klaus Foreman. He and I were the new boys. And it was Tom, Manfred and Mike Hug make, making up the rest of the band. They said, you can do Pretty Flamingo if you've got to go. Do our diddy. We don't think you should tackle five four three two one because I didn't play harmonica, you know. So yeah. we didn't do that one. And of course, we launched into just like a woman, which was our new, our latest record at the time. Yeah, yeah. And I was pretty nervy and unproven. And of course, about five songs into our one-hour set, I lost my voice. <laughs> So the end of the show, of course, we hadn't done things like the Mighty Quinn and Semi Detached and Ha Ha. They were all for further down the line. And, you know, I completely lost my voice. I'm saying, there she was, just walking down the street, so you do want it. And it was really embarrassing. And we had a whole week there. 
But by the second night, my voice had come back. And um, But anyway, Paul tells me that whenever he's fronting the band, uh, you know, which he does do, and I sometimes front the Manfreds without Paul as well, uh, though it, more often he's there than me. Um, he tries to sing the Mighty Quinn. I'm sure he does a good job. I've never heard it. Because yeah, because we, we, I went to see um, uh, the, the, the Manfreds without you. He's very thin, isn't he, Paul? Well, he's taller than me, he's got more hair than me, and he's a bit thinner than me, so altogether I'm rather envious. <laughs> but then he had a, a, a spottier skin in his 20s than I did. Ah, I see. So yeah. it, it all he, he had a terrible acne problem, which he freely admits to, you know, but he's, no, he's wearing very well, isn't he? He's not, not anyway, doing... tell me more. <laughs> no, it was, a great, it was a great gig. It was a great... So yeah. When you're now on this, this autumn tour, you're doing it together... Uh, do you sit backstage, uh, you know, having a cup of tea half the time, or what, no, what goes no, on? No, 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 no. Well, I mean, you obviously haven't seen a fully-fledged Manfred show. Uh, we all come on, all seven of us. Probably it'll start with uh, Paul and the one in the middle. Let me tell you about the Manfreds, the music that we're putting down. You know, that was a big hit off their EP, the one in the middle EP, 1965. Then it'll go to me, Ha Ha Said the Clown. Paul will sing harmonies along and play the harmonica riff that's, uh, you know, similar to the flute riff. Ha Ha Said the Clown, all that. Then it'll go to him for Shalala, then it'll come to me for Just Like a Woman, then it'll go back for him for Oh No, Not My Baby, then it'll come back to me for Fox on the Run. And so we go on like a sparring match, a tennis match. We had 15 hits. If you add in the Build Me Up Buttercup and Handbags and, and the McGuinness Flint hits and the Paul Jones hits, we will intersperse the evening with 20 hit songs. Yeah. So there's not an awful lot of room for anything else. So you, but okay. there will be room to surprise people with our dexterity and um, musical skills and a few surprises. I might even throw out the odd finger of fudge if, if I decide to get the audience to sing a finger of fudge, which was one of my jingles. Well, you did the advert for that one. You wrote the yeah. song, the finger of fudge, just enough to... Well, do, I if, I, if, I, if I sing that, does that mean you get money? I'll tell you what, why don't we sing it together? Yeah, it's a good idea. Well, we've got to choose the right key. So this is our key. Here we go. Right, okay. Let me clear my throat. Right, here we go. Yeah, right. A finger of fudge is just enough to give your kids a treat. A finger of fudge is just enough until it's time to eat. It's all the scabbery goodness and tempting small and neat. You're behind me, I think. A fudge is just, just enough to, to give, give your kids, kids a treat. Whoa! Right. There we go. So that's good, that. Well, you, wrote, when did you wrote that. I presume you wrote that in sort of 20 minutes. Yeah, if that. <laughs> um, have you, have you written other adverts? Nine, round about 1972, I got linked up with a um, jingle agent called Jeff Wayne, who yeah. wrote War of the World. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then one of his agents who worked for him called sue manning left formed her own company said would you like to write jingles with me and i for me i i said yes uh and over those years i wrote butlins i i was an award winner. i'll tell you what now we've got you onto you've got me into jingles yeah. i wonder if you or any of your listeners recognize my butlins ad which i realized a couple of years later was a note-for-note copy of a Beatles song <laughs> Now I'll give you the I'll give you my Butlins jingle, and you tell me what song you think it was Here inadvertently, right. unintentionally copying. Ah, right. uh, 
There's a world of fun and laughter that is waiting just for you. Because Butlin Land is Freedom Land, and you can do what you want to do. <laughs> it's got a familiar ring to it. Hour of darkness, there is still Mother Mary comes to me, whispering words of wisdom. Let it be. So, but Paul McCartney, I'm glad to say, never sued me. On Good, that. glad on it. Glad he's got enough money. Um, so I wrote, uh, yeah, Finger of Fudge, the Butlins, the Kodaks, the Kellogg's, the Top Cat cat food. Uh, uh, rock and Rollers, Crisp and Crunchy from Golden Wonder. It went on a Finder's Crispy Pancakes. There were hundreds of them. So did you, get, did, you go, did you go to an office in the morning and they say, hey, we're doing fish fingers today? No, what they would do, Sue would ring me up, said, Mike, I've just had a call from Jay Walter Thompson. They're, they want a new jingle for Roundtree's Dairy Milk. Yeah. Which was one I did instrumentally, actually. I said, well, okay, describe it to me. And they said, they want something pastoral. They've got the film. If you'd like to come and look at the film, this is it. And they want some music. Uh, They want a 30 seconds, a 15 seconds, a 45, and a blah, blah, blah. So I would do it. I'd say, okay, tell them to come around next Friday to to my basement. I had a, a house in... Paddington with a basement sort of studio, not a studio, but a music room downstairs. Yeah. And they'd all come around and have coffee, and I'd say, well, look, I've come up with two tunes. How about this one? Blah, 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 blah. Oh, no, we're not so sure about that one. Okay, here's the other one. Oh, yeah, we love that one. Okay, <laughs> well, we'll have it for you next week. And it was my sort of bread and butter. Yeah. Because what had happened, I'd, the Manfred Man, we'd split in 69. I then did my acting. I did my Gulliver's Travels, and I did my Royal Court theatre bit for a bit then i made my solo album which sold about three records <laughs> or 300 <laughs> if i'm very honest and my solo career didn't really take off so then i got asked to do the jingles and then i sang on the jesus christ superstar album the original one and then i you know the jingle was my sort of See, but did you make, do you make more money out of jingles than you did out of uh, out rock and roll well, I tell you, with Manfred Mann, I was paid fifty pounds a week. You're not going to get make a fortune on that, are you? No. So, so what was fifty pounds a week um, for a year, and it went up to seventy five pounds for the second week, for the second year. Yeah. <laughs> um, I probably made ten thousand pounds out of Manfred Mann. That's not something you can buy your mama house in the country with, is it? No. So at all. I made my money out of songwriting and and jingle writing. Um, because you did, it, was not a big earner for yeah, me at yeah. all. Because because handbags and glad rugs you sort of famously wrote, and that, and I guess that people will pick up on that because of the fact that uh, uh, it became a big hit for a number of people uh, over the years. Well, it did because I mean, it didn't initially. I wrote it uh, and recorded it first of all with Chris Farlow in 1968, 67 or 68. Then I was offered Rod Stewart to produce, who nobody had heard of. He was then the lead singer with Jeff Beck. Yeah. And this is about two years, be- three years before Maggie May. So his fir- he put it on his first album, and I arranged that and played piano for him, and that sold about 500 copies around the world. And then Rod Stewart became a big star after Maggie May, and everyone started listening back to his earlier product, and they suddenly discovered, rediscovered handbags, and he started putting it in his live show, you know, yeah. which he still does. Then he re-recorded in 1991 for his Unplugged album, which went to number one in America. And then Blow Me Down, the Stereophonics covered it 
in in 2000 and then the biggest surprise of all was when Ricky Gervais chose the piece of music for The Office which actually was a bit of a disappointment and frustration for me because nobody told me that they were using the song the publishers never told me and I wish they'd let allowed me to play the piano for the you know the the office yeah. version because I thought that's not handbags and gladwags that some guy and I thought it was pretty weak yeah. and at the end of the thing then they did a vocal version which I thought was better but I wasn't consulted at all about that and I would have liked to have been you know musical director and had some say in how they recorded that but then you know beggars can't be choosers or should we say so that mean that was something, does that mean that if, if, if like the hand that yeah. feeds you so if I, if I if i decide to uh, record a uh, uh, the james watt version of handbags and glad rags and stick it out i don't have to tell you but you still get the money you don't have to tell me but i do get the money that's if you sell any records at yeah, all yeah obviously yes which having heard your singing i'm not sure you would <laughs> but i don't, that's me being flippant sorry <laughs> So yeah, but that, but that, that's the, that's the so you you've got no control over who who covers your no, your song. No, in fact, when the Stereophonics, when I rang up the manager, he said, "Yes, who are you?" I said, "It's Mike Darbo." Uh, regarding handbags and glad rags, um, he said, "Yes, what do you want?" I said, "Well, it's my song. I wrote it." He said, "No, you didn't. Rod Stewart <laughs> wrote it." I said, "I'm sorry, he didn't. I wrote it, and I want to." tell you because in fact uh, th this is an interesting story when the stereophonics split up in 19 2000 uh, what, 1999 for a year it was like an amicable split kelly jones did a whole lot of solo work and he actually recorded handbags and glad rags as a solo artist on jules holland's hoot nanny yeah yeah for the new year of 1999 or 2000 i forget which and so when I knew that the song was being featured on The Office, I got hold of the Stereophonics manager to say, look, you might like to know that the song is being used on a regular basis and maybe because Kelly Jones has actually recorded it uh, on his own, you know, he might like to do, do, be aware of that. And he's, once he accepted that I was the writer, he said, well, it's an extraordinary thing you should phone up. We're just doing it as their latest single now. And so came out i think it went to number four in the charts and in fact i was told if they'd pressed enough copies it would have gone to number one but they didn't press enough copies but that's another story well, does one song uh mean that you don't have to work ever again if you have a one massive hit does that mean you don't have to work ever again no it's not quite like that in fact there is a sort of graph of you know just a, within a year you get paid about a year to 18 months after the hit and I did have some nice years from sort of 2002 to 2006. And then you see the graph going in and it's ever dec decreasing, <laughs> declining certain downward path. Yeah. And you accept that between Buttercup and Handbags, it'll always be a, a sort of livelihood for me. It'll be a sort of pension. I can't yeah. deny that. Yeah, yeah. But it's never too late for someone to pick it up again and say, "Let's give it another." And do, when, and do, do you get a sort of check through the through the post from Britain, and then you get one from America and one from Australia, or does no, it, all it all comes into one central source, which is PRS? If you're talking about performances, Performing Rights Society, uh, they pay you out uh, four times a year, and the publisher pays you twice a year. And uh, sometimes you're pleasantly surprised, and other times you've based all your assumption on building the, the west wing of your house, you know, on the fact that you'll get a decent <laughs> check. And it comes through the post, and you think, my goodness, I'm not sure I can afford this east wing that I've just 
just to got the builders to to, to build. Um, can can you stop the building right there, please? Because I've run out of money. Yes, yeah, so you don't know which way it's going to go. Well, it sounds- it's quite a fun game. I'll tell you what. I've never told anyone this before, but PRS I call Priscilla. And my EMI, I call her Emily. So they're, they're my two girlfriends, and sometimes they let me down, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and in fact, now EMI has been sold to Sony. So Sony, I've called Sonia. So I've got Sonia, Emily, and Priscilla. <laughs> so if I, if I, my is, unofficial girlfriend. So I've, it's, and, the, and the deal is, you, do you want people playing uh, those songs on the radio? Do you want a, a new well, group? Yes, to, you do. I mean, I that's, know that's how you make the big money, is it? That's where the money's well, coming local from. local rate will pay about 48p for a performance of handbags and glad rags whereas radio one not that they'd ever play it but radio two might yeah if they played build me up buttercup or handbags and glad rags that's worth something in the region of 40 quid 40, is that 40 quid to you or to the group of people that are involved for, for 40 quid into the pot which is then divided up amongst the writer or writers and publisher or publishers yeah so um so you, you can know, so you, you're gonna say five or ten quid out of it through the the conveyor belt, you know, it, it's very often 20p. <laughs> but enough 20p's do add up to something that provide you with a meal ticket and, for and it, and, and America, for Christmas and, it, and if it gets played on a station in America, the same sort of thing goes on, I guess. Well, yeah, but America have been very generous with Build Me Up Buttercup. They have it's had 5 million radio plays. Wow. So that, um, that I'm very grateful for. I keep getting these awards for another million plays. Do you know, Buttercup has been played more times in America than uh, Ticket to Ride, which I find extraordinary. Wow. You know, or some of the Beatles hits. They love it over there. I once went to get a phone. I went in, I filled in on my form. It said occupation. I said composer. And the guy said, say, Mike, is there any song you've written that we might have heard of? And I said, well, you might have heard of a song called Build Me Up Buttercup. And he said, hey! And he sort of clapped his hands to about 100 people in the shop. This guy wrote Build Me Up Buttercup. And the whole sort of shop burst into applause. <laughs> That's the American for you. know, They're much more outgoing. So, you know, it's done me, done me proud over the years. It sounds fantastic. Hey, but we're, I think I've enjoyed chatting. I think we're outstaying our welcome. Uh, we? we are just about. We better, we better let you go. You've got to get ready for your gig. I know it's not for a while, but there we go. You can check out the Manfreds. Uh, they're on tour this autumn. Uh, go to the usual spots. You'll find them. They're all over the place, all being well. You know what it's like at this time now, in this crazy world we're living. Uh, hey, this is James Watt in Conversation Show Talk. If you want to contact me, James Watt UK on Twitter or hello at jameswattuk.com. There's a sort of theme going on there. Do subscribe because there's none of these. If you want to contact us, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, I'll catch you around fairly soon for the James Watt in Conversation. Conversation podcast. Thank you very much and have a good day.